0: Hello and welcome to episode 10 of The Game Pit. Today is another one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes. I'm Sean and I'm with Ronan today.
1: Hello there. We're going to be going over some games we've been playing recently. I'm going to be talking about Hanabi and Cube Quest. Sean?
0: And I'm going to be talking about Blood Bowl Team Manager the card game and letters from Whitechapel. You can catch all of our episodes on 2d6.org, along with a whole host of other gaming goodness. So the first game up today is going to be Blood Bowl Team Manager, the card game. This came out in 2011 published by Fantasy Flight Games. It's designed by Jason Little, who's had a big part in Star Wars X-Wing Miniatures game, Chaos in the Old World, the Horned Rat expansion, and a number of role-playing games. The game plays two to four people, and the playtime is roughly 90 minutes. It's basically a game based on the fantasy sports classic Blood Bowl, and it incorporates elements of deck and pool building, there's a little bit of dice rolling, some hand management with differing powers for each team stroke player. Uh, there is an expansion now, it's called Sudden Death. So, playing the game, how do you play it? In the game, you're trying over five rounds to game as many fans as possible, with the player with the most fans at the end of the game winning. After choosing or randomly drawing your team, from wood elves, dwarves, humans, orcs, skavens, or the chaos team, players will have five rounds to build up their teams and compete for the coveted blood bowl tournament teams start with 12 basic player cards using six per round and a number of cards depending on the number of players are placed in the middle of the table to form the matchups where the teams will compete against each other for rewards there are a number of highlight cards and one tournament headline card at each highlight match there are three awards one on either side of the card which are just claimed by placing and keeping one of your players on that side of the matchup card, and one in the middle, which is only claimed by the player who wins the matchup. The tournament cards differ slightly in that there's a winner, a runner up, and a loser. The headline cards have no rewards, but simply add a game condition to other matchups for that round. So when you're competing for the matchups, all the players will commit team members to the highlight or tournament cards, with the rule you can only compete on one side of a matchup, so you can't compete against yourself. With only two teams allowed on each highlight card, but the tournament cards again differ in that all the teams may compete for those rewards. So, how do you decide who wins the matchup? Well, each player you commit to the matchup has a number in the top corner. And the players have different numbers ranging from 1 to 5. And you add the numbers together and the person with the highest total wins. Nice and simple, right? No. The players have skills and unique abilities. And this can get very messy at a matchup. So the skills are cheating. A player will gain a random cheating token. And this can be anything from extra fans to more points to add to your matchup to being ejected from that matchup. The token is not revealed until the end, so cheating is a bit of a gamble. Passing. Holding the ball adds two points to your team's matchup score and can feed into other bonuses. Passing allows your team to gain that ball and move it around with their teammates at the matchup sprinting you can exchange a card in your hand for one in your draw pile this is a good way to circle through the weaker cards in your deck tackling tackling players successfully will reduce their contribution to the matchup and can often make them drop the ball a tackled player card is turned to the side where a lower number is located and in this number is now the relevant number tackle a downed player again successfully and now they are injured are removed from the matchup so tackles can be quite powerful i also mentioned that there's some unique abilities these are printed on the card below the skills and generally things that happen that will frustrate and annoy your opponents once all of these have been resolved you can now work out who has won each matchup and divvy up the spoils quick run through what you do win you win fans obviously because i say you win the game star players You can draft much cooler, better, harder players into your team. Team upgrades. These are little bonuses that are tailored to your team and can give you the edge in matchups and a staff upgrade, which is a general bonus that can be used for matchups giving you a boost or end-of-game points. And I know Ronan has, has a fond place in his heart for these. So that's it. Basically, once you finish the fifth round, the players add up all their fans and bonuses, and the winner is the player with the most fans. Ronan, we had a game of this recently. I tried to forget about it, but we did.
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm amazed you're still calling it a game. Wasn't it a lesson?
0: (laughs) I would actually have to say that it was a bit of a lesson. You actually doubled my points, and I've never seen that done in this game, so yes. Um,
1: Yeah, um, we've had it for a while, and it's one that keeps coming back out. We seem to enjoy it a lot. It's almost there's more fun to it than the mechanisms would suggest. When you get down to it, it's... It's basically a trick-taking game in, in a way. It's a case of yeah, the rewards are laid out, laid out, and you're playing cards in an attempt to win what amounts to being the trick. You know, you're going to get some fans, or you're going to get those star players, or what have you. There is a little bit of tactics, I guess, in which one you go for, where you start off your players, and that also depends on how many players are playing. If, if there's two of you, you're very much kind of limited. And although it has got that good mechanism whereby there's four games laid out and once two are committed to the other two go so that that's that's a lot better than you know it could be other way just two available that would have felt a bit restrictive but when there's more players you're certainly more worried about who you're matching up against and and how they've been building their their team and and how the teams that you're up against balance out against each other and that's something i wanted to ask you about is the teams they all play differently they're all kind of thematic in how they play what's your thoughts on how they've done that and built the different teams into the system
0: i think yeah i think that's exactly yeah i think every team does play slightly differently for instance you played the chaos team uh, the other day when we played and they're all, all about the cheat all about getting those cheating tokens getting in decimating the, the opposition they've got a lot of tackle a lot of cheat and somewhere like the dwarfs very sturdy, very hard to knock down, got a lot of powers that will stop you tackling them and quite good in the tackle themselves. And You've got the Wardells who are all about quick, going through the deck really quick. They've got lots of the pass uh, things. So they, they do all play really differently. You can add aspects of each of the other thing into the teams by getting bonuses and things like that. But yeah, I think they do play differently and that adds to the thematic feel of it. And I do think harking back to our days playing Blood Bowl as kids. I do think it does have the same ring to it, the same feel, definitely. What do you think?
1: Um, It has the same kind of feel. I think that to a lot of us, that idea of Blood Bowl is very familiar from, you know, Games Workshop days and what have you. I'm sure we all had some figures, or lots of figures, and, and the idea of this American football and it was almost blossoming in, in the UK, you know, it was kind of a new exciting thing. But when it gets down to actually playing the game, in terms of the decisions I'm making when I play those cards down to matchups, I don't really feel like I'm playing a sports game. I do feel like I'm just playing cards for a particular reason. You know, I'm not. I don't particularly feel that the cards I'm putting down and the, the players I'm adding are, are going there in order to play a game of Blood Bowl. What do you think?
0: Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah, I, I think maybe the actual game itself is kind of lost the cards that you are playing the matchup cards are showing a football pitch and there is a trophy that you you compete for but yeah i get what you're saying the only thing that probably lets you sort of dive into the actual game aspect the blood bowl game aspect is probably the ball carrying the ball but other than that it is it's definitely a keen eye for a choice of card and making sure that you don't play it to the wrong matchup and don't oversell yourself to one matchup that you've already possibly won, and yeah, I think people were commenting that we were scratching our heads a little bit in this one. It's a lot deeper than you think it's going to be.
1: Yeah, especially kind of almost strangely for FFG, mechanically it's quite simple, isn't it? That there's you are just playing six cards down into one of I, I think it's five is it the maximum spaces or, or four anyway. Um, it's just six cards being played and they don't do a lot when you play them it's not like they go down and then there's 14 rules and 17 exceptions and you have to roll 82 dice it's not actually that they're very limited in what they do when they go down it's like you say it's more that aspect of looking at the bigger picture what you're going to commit when you're going to commit it what you playing a card reveals to your opponents so for once it's a mechanically quite simple game that um, Fantasy Flight have come up with and also I think that it's there that the team manager thing comes into it that's, that's kind of one of the keys in the name it's, it it doesn't feel like you're playing a game of Blood Bowl it does feel like you're managing a team and a roster of players and, and, and managing how the season goes and how you build up that roster and where to commit and where to hold back and what have you and it's much more that kind of step back feel to the game
0: Yeah I think for me that's where the fun of it lies because I just love going for those star players trying to get those big bad horrible so-and-sos into your roster and really bully the opposition of course it can all go wrong and you can keep picking up the 2.3 booters i kept picking up against you the other day but that's the way it goes you ride your luck sometimes
1: yeah i mean definitely it's uh, an ffg game and they don't mind a bit of randomness and a bit of chaos in there it's, it's, it's not perfect information it's not all completely you know fair in inverted commas i guess there's there's random stuff to it, how you pull, how you roll the dice, there's luck going on. In terms of sort of that fairness and what have you, do you think that all the teams are balanced? don't
0: know if I've played it enough to really answer that question. I think so. Um, I've not really worked out every matchup. I think the Chaos team is a complete and utter gamble. So you're running the risk of being ejected from the matchup all the time, but when you've got that level of cheating going on, it's a calculate gamble. So I suppose the chaos team could be overbalanced, but then it's, I don't know. (laughs) It's it's one of those, I think they're all balanced fairly well. I mean, the the humans are kind of in the middle ground as they tend to be in these fantasy games. They do a little bit of everything. The, um, The chaos, as we said, cheat. And yeah, I think there's different, tactics for you to use but i think you rely on your your star players for certain teams i will say i think lord elves rely on their star players a little bit more than say the chaos team but they've all got the same numbers you've all got your blockers you've all got your two scores your three scores and your four scores in there so i think they are balanced i don't know if you've experienced any differently
1: oh i, I think it's one thing is, like, for example, you say that Wood Elves are reliable their star players more than other teams. But then one of the cool things about that is that Wood Elves cycle through their decks quicker than other teams. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, so they, you know, they play quite cleverly. Uh, I, I, for me, the Wood Elves have always been pretty powerful. And like in a lot of games, the doors have been rubbish. But <laughs> who knows? Again, I haven't played it dozens and dozens of times. Um, another question for you. we played it two player. We've played it three and four player. Do you think there's a best number of players for the game?
0: I think, well, I think three or four players, probably four players, to be honest. I think there's a lot of interaction, and although you're not always directly competing against the, everyone on the table, but you are competing against a different person probably every round, and I think it does have a lot of chat, and there's a lot. It's nasty. It can be a nasty, but it, the discussion's good, and it's it's a, one of those ones that gets you talking and gets you shouting at the other player oh dude, what are you doing to me and then when you roll those two blanks instead of the two tackles will you manage to tackle one of your own players and get them out of the game i think yeah i think it's a really good game for the chat so the more players the better for me
1: okay and another question for you is sometimes when you're halfway through or so through the game the pattern for the game is really developed if someone's really won a lot of fans they've been able to win some early matchups get better star players into their deck is is the pattern set are you then in a situation where the strongest get stronger and the weakest are just going to be scratching around for points
0: you're talking about the other day again aren't you
1: uh not necessarily (laughs) it can happen i don't think
0: it happens all the time in fact more often than not it doesn't happen but yeah it can happen it's it's just one of those things if you have a bad run of luck and you just can't get those star players in if that's the tactic you go for if you if you can't just get hold of that ball for the end of, by the end of the game and that's that's your strength then yeah, these things happen, and sometimes when another player does get those big star players and not just the star players, it's those upgrades, those team upgrades, and those staff upgrades they can be very powerful they can for instance um when we when we played the other day, the one thing the chaos team can't do is recycle quickly. They've got maybe one player that does that, but you picked up a card that allowed them to do that, so that was that became quite powerful and those upgrades can be really, really game clinching.
1: yeah, it's definitely something I was going to come on to is that f f g themselves removed some of those cards from the game with a, with an f a q and update to the rules and we take some of those cards out of the game as well because in the game when it's first printed and as it comes in that box, it's some of them are ridiculous, aren't they?
0: Yeah, I knew you were going to bring this one up. I think you're talking about the ones that give you the massive, massive score bonuses at the end of the game and are completely random as to how you get them, yeah? Oh, yes. Right, yeah, so there's, for instance, uh, pick one off the top of my head. There's the one that gives you two fans per every freebooter you've got in your team and freebooters are quite easy to get to if you just go for star players you're going to get a lot of freebooters um i think i ended up with six when we played the other day that's 12 extra points for me at the end of the game and if it wasn't such a runaway for yourself if i had that card i think that would be a game changer and then add to the ones that give you four and five fans just for doing nothing which is, again, if you luck out and get them. So all of a sudden, I've got a 20-point turn. And usually, that would be a complete game clincher. Someone else might have beaten you well by 10, 15, 20 points. And if you get that bit of luck, you're going to just scrape it back and win the game. And know that's happened to you in the past, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was great. Like you've been the best player at the table for an hour and a half, two hours, and suddenly someone flips over three or four cards that they got in exactly the same way you got your three or four cards. You'll score you three points, and they'll score them 24 points for no good reason. It's yeah. Thank Who you for taking them you? out, FFG. Who would do that to you, Ronan? Uh, yeah. Vengeance Ooh. was mine. Okay. <laughs> no, <it> was awesome. <laughs> I got one last thing to, to ask you to deck build an aspect to the game. I guess is one of the most interesting ones. It's one of the ways you can build your strategy and and decide where you want to go and and how you want to manage your your roster of players. Uh, And it's all about that drafting of star players. Given that it's kind of the one real strategic element you can go for and, and the way that you can direct your path through the game... Do you think there's got to be a better way to draft star players than just pulling one or two off the top of a deck and then going with what you're drawn? I mean, like you said the other day, you did get a bunch of not that great freebooters, whereas I was lucky and pulled uh, Is it Morgan Thor, whatever his name is, the the great five-rated one, uh, very early um, through sprinting. I was able to cycle and get him out often, whereas you're getting guys that have got an ability of two, less than half is. And that's so important and led for me to go after those sprint and recycle abilities in order to get him out again and again, do you think there's a better way to draft those star players?
0: I think there should be. And I was actually thinking about it because if you're a team manager, you're not just going to take pot luck, are you? You're going to go into the transfer market and buy the best players. So I was thinking, so so when you're competing, sometimes you get two, three star player markers on that you win in one matchup. So if you win three another person wins one then maybe you get to choose out of a list maybe there's five that are all just dealt out at the beginning of each round and you get to choose the first one and then they get to choose the second one and and if maybe your bonus is to choose the third one as well if you so wish or something like that I think it should be more of a a draft than a completely random pick. Definitely, yeah.
1: Or maybe even you know, if you if you get the three, then you've got three points to spend on star players. Whether you choose to you know to buy a, a couple of less good ones or try and save up and try and buy one of yeah, the best yeah. ones, you know, yeah, that's
0: a good idea. Yeah, save it up as if it's money. Yeah,
1: yeah. definitely. Yeah, I know we're trying to change the game. We're saying get rid of the bonus cards, change where you draft all that. It's, it is a really good game. I enjoy it a lot, but the, you know you looking at, at slight little ways. Maybe it's, it's our Euro perspective. We want to make it a bit more Euro-y and a bit less random. I whereas... think that's a good thing.
0: I think that's a good thing. It shows that we're really enjoying this game, and we just want to make it better so that it's got that longevity to it.
1: It's that or we're a pair of smart asses. It's one of those two anyway.
0: Well, you are. Maybe not me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: anyway. Um... What would you say?
0: <laughs> so the expansion we we um had a little look at the some of the skills you get in the expansion this is the sudden death expansion which is fairly new out came out this this year what did you think that added to it because we've got like the undeads have got those down skills and resurrection and you've got enchanted bulls the contracts and obviously just having the new teams with the new players in there what did you think that added to the game
1: well i think it's always nice like we said the way the different teams interact is very interesting. The ones that come in the box. So when you add in you know, three more, I think it is, I think it's cool. It's good. It's part of that, how the different teams interact is one of the great kind of draws of the game. So that's a good thing. The contracts were fairly kind of, you know, a little bit more of a random way to score. I could take or leave them. I think that the enchanted balls was quite interesting. So those balls get, placed on all the different matchups and they get flipped over and some of them are extra points some of them are cheat tokens some of them are this or that you know and i quite like that i think they were particularly interesting in the the two-player game we played because it, there was a bit more of a decision there as to which of the matchups you're going to commit to and therefore which of those balls were actually going to be in the game and i mean i'm sure it would be interesting as well with four because where you want to go sometimes, you because know, because first player rotates around the table and it's quite obvious because if there's a space there that's got three guaranteed fans, generally people are going to go there straight away because it's three points scored straight off. Whereas if the ball has got something different on it, then then that makes it slightly more interesting. What, what you want to think to do in terms of the the skills of the teams. I've played with the one. It was the zombies, right? Um, it was kind of yeah, it was interesting. It was good actually. It, what I like is that. It's a new mechanic, but it doesn't really add much complication or time onto the game. It's a case of, yeah, you can tackle me, I'm not that hard to tackle, but I've got a chance to bounce back up again. It's an expansion that adds a bit more random into there, but not in a frustrating way, in a kind of uh, keep things interesting and spiced up sort of a way. What do you reckon to it?
0: Yeah, I think it was a very, very mild expansion. It didn't, as you said, didn't alter the game. It just just Tickled it a little bit. Just just eased eased into the game and found its niche. And, yeah, didn't really upset anyone, hopefully. But, yeah, I thought it was a good good effort. Not groundbreaking, but a nice effort.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's what I quite like to see in expansions. It's don't break it, tweak it a little bit. Don't try and, you know, don't add in a fifth player or add more for no reason. Bring in something that's just a tiny bit different, but doesn't mess with the game that actually I enjoy.
0: Um, I think... For me, to sum up, this is a very funny and frustrating game in equal measures, but good frustrating, not frustrating because it's a bad game. It's frustrating because you can get stitched up. It can be a little bit nasty. It can be a little bit in your face, but it's supposed to be a bloody game of American football set in a fantasy world, so of course it's going to be in your face. I really enjoy it. I didn't play it for a long time. Kept meaning to, and I'm glad I brought it out again recently with the expansion. Brandon?
1: yeah a, a really good game. I really enjoy it a lot it's does feel thematic it does feel like you're running this roster. It does feel interesting. all the different player powers are are fun to discover as you play then they're not annoying. I don't think it's mechanically simple, but you have decisions to make. You are trying to read your fellow player you're trying to see from what they're playing what they might have in their hand there's plenty to think about even if there's downtime there's certainly enough to think about while there's that little bit of downtime and, and there's certainly you're trying to watch everything that's going on and judge even if someone's playing that you're not directly matched up with you've still got the tournament against them so you, everyone is interacting with everyone else the whole time which I really like about the game I think it's a really good, solid, fun game and, and I recommend it Next game I want to talk about is Hanabi, which was from Antoine Bowser, published by Abacus Spiel in 2012. It originally came out in 2010. It was part of the Hanabi and ikebana game, which was uh, two games combined together. But that had a very limited release, and really, it's made its big impact with this Abacus Spiel release last year. The designer is Antoine Bowser, who should be a familiar name. He designed, amongst other things, Seven Wonders, which is kind of a big hit Uh, Ghost Stories he's brought out Takenoko and Tokaido fairly recently and also uh, The Little Prince Make Me a Planet which is another recent release from Antoine now Hanabi is a purely cooperative game Uh, it's a card game it just consists of a deck of cards and all it is is you're trying to create the perfect firework display so it's certainly an unusual theme and the way this is done is Each player is dealt a hand of cards. Now it's two to five players. It's going to take you about 25 minutes to play, which is about right. And depending upon the number of players is how many cards you're going to be given. These cards are all off a particular colour, and there's five different colours in the base game anyway, and they're going to have a number on from between one and five. The unusual thing about this is that when you pick the cards up, you don't see the front. You only look at the back of your own card. So it's kind of like that famous person game where you stick your answer on your head and you're trying to work out from everyone else what the answer on your head is. Well, in this case, you're holding this hand of cards and from what everyone else does uh, and the interaction between the group, you're trying to work out which cards you're holding in your hand and when's the right time to play them or when's the right time to discard them. Now, the group as a whole has a set number of clues to start with and also has three lives. And what they're trying to do is is lay down these cards between them in the correct number order for each of the colors. So you're trying to get your blues down from one to five, your whites, one to five, yellows, reds, and greens. And if you were to get all of those five colors laid down one to five between you as you go around, that would be a perfect score of 25 points. The way you're gonna achieve that is You take turns going around the table and on your turn these are the things you can do you can play a card onto the table this is the riskiest thing to do because if you play a card and it's not the next card in the sequence for that color you're gonna lose for the group one of those three lives the second thing you can do is discard a card from your hand now this is also kind of risky because Unless you know what card it is you're discarding, you may be discarding the card that you need. Now, there's only one five for each of the colours, so that's the big risk. If you discard a five, then there's no chance of you scoring the five points for that particular colour, and you're not going to be able to score the perfect 25. There's also obviously limited numbers of all the other numbers. The third thing you can do, which is almost a no-risk thing, is you can give a clue. What you can do is give a clue to one other player, and you can tell them about either the colours of cards in their hands or what number is on the cards in their hands but you can't do both and there's a certain way in which you must give these clues. Now what you can do is either point out all the cards that are off a certain colour so for example if Sean was holding four cards in his hands and two of them were green I could point to the two cards in his hand that were green and say these two cards are green. That's the clue he would get. Or you can do exactly the same thing, but for a number. So again, Sean's holding four cards and two of them are threes. I could point to two of them and say, these cards are threes. By doing so, I'd have to flip one of the clues that the whole group has over. And that clue is now not available. How do you get the clues back? Well, Remember when I said you can discard a card from play? If you discard a card from play, you may flip one of your clue tokens over. So there's a balance there between giving clues which costs you and then trying not to run out or when you have run out try and leave the person who has run out in a position where they can either discard a card or play a card and it's not going to damage the chances of the group now you go round and round until you get to the bottom of the draw deck then each player gets to do one more action and then you stop and you have a look and you see how wonderful of a firework display you've created between you how close that perfect 25 have you got and that's the game Uh, Interestingly, it's been nominated for the Spiel des Jahres for 2013, again, despite being a 2010 game because it did come out last year. And, Sean, you had your first plays of Hanabi fairly recently. What are your thoughts on this game?
0: Well, I'd heard a lot about this game, and I'd heard a lot about it from you and various other people, and I was really, really interested in to play because it really divided opinions. Some people love it, some people absolutely hate it. So it was during the UK Games Expo a few weeks back. Um, I finally got to have a game of it. And, you know, what? once I got over the really weird feeling of holding your cards facing out and not knowing what's on your own cards, I quite enjoyed it. I, I liked the fact that it was a little bit different. And I liked the fact that it was very interactive, that the group and everyone had to work together. If I did have an issue with the game, it was the fact that it's quite easy to cheat in this game you can smile and people are nodding and it sometimes it's involuntary sometimes someone taps and like talking about their cards but well, i think this is this and i think that's that and sometimes you do it yourself you're just nodding along so it's quite easy to cheat in this game and it's quite easy to deliberately cheat by just going up and give them a wink or what have you but yeah an interesting game very different not really what i was expecting but i know you've got a few issues with it you
1: used a very interesting word there throughout that little commentary and you used the word game (laughs) (laughs) here we go no honest honestly is it a game is it is it just a team building exercise is it an exercise in how much you will allow each other to give away where's the game I
0: think it is a game. It's a deduction game. That's what it is. It's deducing what you have and what you might have and taking the odd gamble. Yes, I can give you that by the end of the game, you'll pretty much know what's in your hand because you've deduced. And the very last turn, I happened to be the very last turn, I knew I had... I I knew what I had, but obviously I didn't know in what order. So two of them would have... Given us 17 points, I think, and one of them would have bust us. So, even then, there's an element of a the game there. I don't think it's as ungame like as you're making out, sir.
1: Deduction suggests getting a certain amount of information and then working something out from there. Now, that implies that you are some sort of an agent within this decision. In <laughs> Hanabi, either you have told me what my cards are or you have not told me what my cards are. I either know or I don't. Now, there are different ways of telling someone what their card is. And that's where this grey area of what's cheating and what isn't is just impossible. The the rules are impossible to follow. Because if you tell me these three cards are red, and then someone says, oh, and these two are two, you know, these two are twos, then I know there's a red two. That's not deduction that someone's told me it's a red two. But what keeps on happening is obviously if someone says to me, this card's a four and points to it like that. And then I look at what's on the table and there's only one place a four can go. Do you know what? Maybe they're telling me that for a reason. Now, <laughs> what I keep on getting in the groups, so I've played this a few times is that, well, yeah, you tell them that for a reason. So, You may as well tell me that's the four I've got to play. You're just, you're telling me exactly the same thing as you're just saying it with different words. So I know if you point something out, right, that's the one I've got to play. That's the red four we've been waiting for. It's like that crazy thing in Pandemic where, you know, you can tell each other your cards, but you can't show them. Well, the good thing is in a pandemic, there are other rules, so that kind of stupidity of, well, you, oh, I can tell you what I've got, but I can't show you, I might as well show you. In Hanabi, you may as well just tell me, it's a Red 4, if you're going to tell me it's a 4, I know it's a Red 4, bosh, played. It becomes that way so easily, you break down the rules so easily with, with people who have played it once or twice together, that... The game just disappears. There's no game there. It just becomes luck of the draw. Have we drawn them in the right order? Brilliant. Did the two that we needed not come out to the last four cards? Well, we're screwed. No game.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that did happen. I think I even did that. I actually told someone that, as you said. Exactly, as you said. I think it even was a four. That's a four. Yeah. <sighs> not the most rigid rule set I've ever played in the game. I enjoyed it. I liked it, I, it was different, it was a different experience. Um, it's an
1: interesting exercise, It's it's <laughs> that's what I feel like, I feel like I've gone away for a course and they've got us together and they've given us an exercise to do together and then we've done it and we've gone, oh, blah, blah. well I don't ever want to do it again <laughs> and that's why I flat with an R I've gone, Ah, oh, yeah, it's an interesting, um, I don't ever want to do it again.
0: I wouldn't go that far. I would like to play it again, but I don't know if I would play it back-to-back or
1: multiple times. But But it's that easy to break. This card is a three.
0: Yeah, I think somewhere someone will probably have to come up with a definitive rule selection for that sort of thing. But for me, yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it.
1: Uh, i didn't mind my first couple of plays of it but i'm certainly over it and and as for a game of the year nominee oh gosh it must that
0: surprised me that uh, i didn't even know that you mentioned it in your spiel about the game and yeah game of the year that's that's a big nomination for not a lot of game
1: yeah well i'm just to let you know the other two are one of them's augustus Uh, Mm -hmm. Another one's Quicks, which I really don't know anything about, but I know it's quite a quick, light game as well. Now, this is for the the kind of Spiel des itself, so it is aimed at kind of a family market, often the deepest games. But you are looking at stuff like Kingdom Builder and Seven Wonders and what have you. So,
0: Mm.
1: Hanabi? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's fun, but it's not the game of the year.
1: Yeah, I think we've really got over it. (laughs) Hanabi, it's almost a game. Sean?
0: Kanabi, it's kind of a game, but it's enjoyable all the same. So, last up for me is Letters from Whitechapel, which is a 2011 release from nexus games but now fantasy flight games are actually doing a version of this the designer is gabriele mari and he did garibaldi the escape and mr x he was helped with this project by genluca santopietro and he did moto grand prix and disney game called wizards of mickey he's also the letters from whitechapel artist this game takes two to six players, and with a rough playing time of 120 minutes. The board game is based on the Jack the Ripper saga, with elements of murder mystery, deduction, bluffing, memory, you've got partnerships going on with secret deployment and area movement. So how do you play the game? One player will assume the role of Jack, while all the other players are detectives, And these detectives are all notable police officers from the time of the murders, including Frank Abbelein, who's probably the most famous person. Now, Jack will attempt to commit five murders over four rounds. And, well, these are the nights of the actual murders. And he has to make it to his hideout each night before being apprehended by the police. So the detectives will attempt to deduce where Jack is or his hideout, And eventually catch him or block his route home. The board is a map of Whitechapel. And on it are sets of connected circles with numbers. These are what Jack uses to move around. And in between the circles are little black squares. And these are what the police use to move around. So to start the game. Tokens representing the victims. Or the wretched as the game refers to them. Are placed on the board. And Jack will decide which one of them to murder. And when. The longer he takes... The more police players can move themselves around the board to get into more advantageous position, but Jack will earn himself more time to get to his hideout. Once the Jack player strikes, the police know exactly where he is on the board, and the hunt will begin. So obviously Jack's not going to choose a place next to a police officer. He's going to wait until he's comfortable that he's got a clear route home or he's far enough from the police officers. So Jack will now move along the numbered circles and he'll make a note of what ones he or she lands on or moves over on the player sheet. Obviously, there's no physical player piece for Jack because that wouldn't be much of a game because everyone would see exactly where he is. So the police move towards the area. They search for clues. If they search for a circle that Jack has been on, then a token is placed on that and they can see his movements, or one of the places that he's crossed. And they can then form a theory about where he's heading, although they don't know when he was on that actual spot. Jack has a certain number of moves that he can take before he has to be in the hideout, which, as I said before, can differ depending on when the murder was committed. If Jack doesn't reach the hideout, he loses and the police players win. However, Jack has a couple of tricks up his sleeve and can use what is called a coach token to take two movements in one go, or a lantern token, which you can move from one side of a block to another. This is basically described as him escaping through the back alleys of a block. The game continues now over four rounds or nights, with Jack needing to commit two murders on the third night to make the five murders. All the while, the police should be building up a fair idea of where Jack's hideout is. And it's towards the end of the game, unless I'm playing Jack, who I'm pretty rubbish at playing Jack, towards the end of the game, they'll probably have a pretty good idea where Jack's hideout is and can start trying to make an arrest. To make an arrest, you just search the circle, and if Jack happens to be on it, then... Jack gets arrested and the police win. If Jack makes it home all five nights, Jack wins. If the police stop him getting home or arrest him, they win. And that's that's pretty much the game in a nutshell. Roland, how do you feel about this one?
1: I think it's a very interesting game and it certainly has lots of fun elements to it and there's kind of a great tension around the table when you play the game. There's Jack, constantly feels like the police are right next to him on top of him and and there's the a a good round exciting round will go that jack will do some movement the police will find his trail and they start going in one of the either the right direction or the wrong direction and that jack really has to start thinking on his feet it's it's very dependent i think how each round goes because if jack just gets a clear run home then it's not too much fun really for anyone um if the police get jack too early then obviously that's not too much fun but If they get on the trail and then he's got to change his plans as he's going and try and keep one step ahead... That's really, really brilliant and it's almost worth. Well, it's definitely worth having maybe one or two rounds where it doesn't go so well for either side in order to have those real interesting tense rounds where everyone's involved and Jack's got to think on his feet and there's heated discussion going around and you know, the, the ones where all the police get up and walk outside the room and have a chat because they don't want Jack to hear what they're saying. I don't know whether is in the rules or not they're allowed to do it, but just because everything's getting a bit too tense. Uh, so there's a lot of fun to be had here. I don't think it's a perfect game. I think there are some issues with it. But I definitely think it's a game that's worth playing.
0: I'm a big fan of this game, and it's probably going to come through as I talk about it. But I think it's one of those games that it's almost like a... Forget the subject matter. I'll come on to that later. But it's almost like one of those old party games when everyone's involved and you're all having a laugh and a chat about where could they be. And one person... If you're playing the role of Jack Wright, you're you're being sneaky, you're being crafty, you're putting suggestions to the the other team, so Jack's always involved, and obviously the police are always involved. They're having discussions on where Jack might be. It's a real, real sort of communal game. Everybody's involved all the time, and that's one of the things I love about this.
1: Yeah, it's definitely um, quite group-dependent as well on, on how it goes, but it, it kind of in a good way, I think. I think if people... Analyze every every single move and start trying to plot graphs and use calculators and whatever you to work everything out. It really bogs down and gets slow. Which, as well as being group dependent, this is one of the other issues. We'll talk about that in a sec, though. But if everyone plays it in the right spirit, if everyone the, the police side are willing to cooperate. Uh, and Jack's willing to make it fun as well I mean you want to try and win but don't don't get too stressed about things or don't get too worried just just to go with it I know again with the subject matter that can be a bit strange in that what it's a fun game about Jack the Ripper but it is actually quite a fun game The, the actual mechanisms of play are very light it's all what, what those mechanisms lead you to think it's the double bluffs it's it's how you react to what's going on, on the board that actually brings sort of the depth of the play and the interaction and, and that's what I think is really good how important do you think having that leader of the police each turn is to the game as in or how important is their role did they really make any difference
0: I think when you said it's group dependent that actually wrote, rings very true for me on this I think if you're willing to take on the roles and you can you can adapt this game to suit you this this. There's so much scope to adapt it. You can make that leader, that police chief leader, more important than they are technically in the game. As it stands, probably not really that important. They just get to place the police counters at the beginning of the round. So so they do it in where they think. But you can make them... So more important, as I said more important than they are by just adding a few house rules and things like that but going back to the group dependency you do have to almost play a role in this game you have to think as Jack almost in terms of you you've got to be a sneaky person you've got to get involved in it it's very easy I think for some players to just sit as Jack shut up let them get on with it watch what they're doing and I think If that happens, you will get a disconnect from the game and Jack will be kind of isolated until he's turned because it can take quite a long time for the police to decide amongst themselves. And that's where, obviously, the chief of police would come in and just sort of guide them and say, "Okay, we're going to do this. This is the area I want you two to search in. This is the area I want you two to search in. The rules don't state that, but there's things that I think we've tested a few times before and it's worked.
1: Yeah, I mean, that trying to get the the police for at least someone to try and keep things moving I think is very important there's there's definitely that chance that things will get bogged down and people will just want to overthink absolutely everything and they'll want to start trying to plan moves three four ahead and you know there's that thing of getting stressed with each other I said you have to do that no 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 and you have to somehow between you whatever it is within your group that you decide let's keep this moving let's keep going let's just you know let's not try and overthink every single little thing because it's it's a long game it's a lot it, you, if you make it through all those rounds you're going to be there for well, i'd say two hours is really ambitious i'd say three hours at least and there's definitely a chance it can just go too long because like i say you're not there's not a lot mechanically you're doing. You have got some tough decisions to make, but they're, they're almost kind of simple decisions. If you if you cut out the human interaction, they're simple decisions. It's do I go here or do I go there? So while I would I agree with you that people have to become their character and get involved and make these decisions count, otherwise it, there's not enough depth just there unless you get involved for it to make it an interesting game. It's also you've got to go the other way. You've got some way of saying, look, let's not get too... No one is actually dying in this game. We need to keep it moving, otherwise it's no good for everyone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, as you said, that's where probably the two leaders, and obviously the police leader changes, but I think Jack has a responsibility. And you have to have the right players. Jack. I played Jack, and I was caught in the first round, and even though everyone had fun in the game, I was just rubbish at Jack. I wasn't crafty enough. I confused myself. I left myself Way too far away from home, and I think I couldn't even make it home in the end. So that was—I was just ridiculously bad at Jack. I think when you played Jack, you played it really well. You just got home quickly in the first two rounds. Threw a couple of
1: red this herrings. Is not a good character reference you're giving me here.
0: <laughs> well, I don't—I don't know what that says about you, but yeah, you played a very good Jack Ripper in the game. So yeah, I think Jack and the police officer obviously, obviously do have to lead the game to a certain, sorry, the chief police uh, do have to lead the game to a certain degree. Um, Just talking, we've kind of mentioned it in passing a little bit, but this game is really, really faithful historically to the actual ripper murders in Whitechapel. And yeah, even down to the names of the players, the actual map that they use is the map taken from that period. And they just put circles and squares onto it it's very very lovingly crafted game and very faithful as i said
1: yeah you'd think that in order to make it into any sort of interesting game that a lot of times you just have to completely abstract what's going on i I mean i guess mr jack we've both played it right there's this another one on a similar theme but it's i like it it's a good game it's only for two players but it's completely abstracted There's, there's it's very much a puzzle whereas what they've done here is of course, we're talking about you know components on the board. It's it's not the real thing, but they've very much kept the flavor of it. The fact they've been able to make a grid and, and a root system that works using that original map, it it does actually feel quite tense. And as the police, you really feel like you need to catch this Jack. It's like you know terrible things happening. The grid I catch him, the better. Uh, and as Jack, you do feel a, a little bit you know not right when you get away with things although i'm quite happy to be a bit smug and rub it in your face when it happens um so th- i think they've done really really well to make it feel like a, a tense catch the murder game, uh without being too graphic or adult about anything or, or, or certainly not being gratuitous it's the tension that they've brought into it rather than any sort of you know there's a lot of splashes of blood everywhere and pictures of weapons and what have you that they've avoided that i think it's they've done very well in doing that
0: oh definitely and i mean if you look at the rule book in the nexus version i don't haven't seen the fantasy flight version i don't think they've changed a lot though. but there's even the historical notes in the rule book to tell you what happened on each night and yeah just really really well crafted game and can't fault them for that really there are optional rules i know i don't Think you've played with them, and I certainly haven't played with them. But there are optional rules in there also that will make it harder for the Jack player, or harder for the Police players, depending on how your group tends to lean. I think the groups tend to lean that it's actually harder for the Police, unless I'm Jack, of course. So and there's little there's little things that you can tweak. So they've thought about it, and they've thought about if somebody's really good at Jack, let's make it harder for them, or if the Police are struggling, let's make it harder harder for Sorry, or if um, Jack's struggling to get away at IME, um, let's make it harder for the for the police. So, I think it is a very well play-tested game, and we did go on about this on the show quite a bit, about games that arrive that haven't really been play-tested, and there's not, I suppose, a lot of rules to this game, but I think they have gone down that path of really play-testing it and getting it out there. It's been likened to a game called Scotland Yards which I've certainly never played, but a lot of people who've... Played it for the first time. Gone, have gone. It's just a slightly deeper version and a more themed version of Scotland Yard. So yeah, I, th- I think they've produced a very, very good game here.
1: I think that that um, where, whereby you can change the, the difficulty for either side is it's a definite nod from them to the fact it's group dependent and and very much it is. And we keep saying it. And if a group plays in a certain way, then play it like this. If a group plays in a certain way, play it like that. Because. There are plenty of games where if you're playing with a certain group of people, you you can break them, really. Um, They work with other groups. And and it's really nice to see that they're not too precious about their baby. They're not so, no, these are the rules. If it doesn't work with you, it's your fault. It's okay, these are the rules, but there's lots of flexibility here. It's a lot about how humans talk to each other and treat each other and how they think. So, therefore, if it's not quite on that centre line of fun for you, try this or try that. So, I think it's a really good nod. Um, And while you say... Playtesting is something we go on about. Another thing we go on about a lot is the the pacing of a game and, and whether it comes to a climax or not. This I think could be my biggest problem with letters from Whitechapel. There is a chance that the first couple of rounds, or or certainly the middle ones anyway, are the most interesting rounds. And then the last ones can be a bit of an anti climax. We had that one whereby I set it up so that the murder was, I think, three moves away from my hideout right at the end. So everyone's kind of like, oh, we're on him, we're on him, we're on him. So I can see that all the other police are getting really excited for this last round and they think they might do it. And I'm sitting there going, it's really unlikely they're going to catch me because I'm right next to where I've got to get home and we're going to have a five-minute last round. So there's that possibility of the, the ending falling a little flat. What do you think, Sean?
0: Yeah, house rules. <laughs> I think, yeah, that is definitely, if Jack plays it, that way and plays for the end game right from the start and knows where his hideout is, knows where one of the wretched is going to be standing and it is sort of right next door to the hideout as it was with you, then yeah it can be massively anticlimactic, and that kind of goes goes against everything that this game's about. It's It's the very sort of being of this game is that it's all about tension and building up this profile of where Jack might be going and how he's getting there and getting sent on wild goose chases and yeah the last one should be the the daddy should be the big like you you're only a hair's breadth away from jack all the time and the play will the place get to him just before he gets there that's the way it should play out and yeah uh, the way you played it so basically you ruined the game for us uh you played Quite before the end <laughs> you, you played for the end game and you won so, uh, yeah, I think house rules, um, the final one can't be your closest, the closest. Uh... <laughs> that's just not
1: house rule, that's just bitterness coming out. <laughs> well, I mean, we kind of chatted about when it happened. The other thing, though, would have been if I had had that close one at any other point, then it would have been too easy to work out what my hideout was because you'd have known right from that he's got home in three moves, there's only a certain... And if you just went and crowd around that area, I'd be in big trouble, so... Yeah, there's you know. ways
0: around that one, though. Obviously, Jack can go on a little merry dance around the board and just come back to his hideout. So, there's, there, I think there are ways around that one, but not so I much the final bit,
1: If you're saying that Jack has to play sub-optimally in order to keep the tension, then that's one step too far. Yeah,
0: I, I'm sure there's a better way of doing it. I, mean, I haven't really thought about it enough to come up with anything concrete, but... I think there must be a better way of doing it because it does take
1: the sting out of the game, really. Okay, Sean, have you got final thoughts on Let's Whitechapel?
0: I just, I'm a big fan. I mean, even as a child, I was always interested in in the whole Whitechapel going oh, on up there. that a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, it was always a game that I was going to pick up just because of the co- content, but to actually to have it turn into a really good game and a really, really tense sort of trying to catch the catch the villain before they get away. A game is yeah, exactly what I wanted from the game and it delivered for me. Love it. It's one of my favourite games.
1: I think it's a very good game. I think that it provides sort of a roller coaster of an experience in that it can be really fantastic. It can give you moments or half an hour, an hour of fantastic, amazing play. As good as you'll get in any game. And then there can be dips and they can happen in the same game. It's not like every game will be good or every game will be poor. It's just that the way it is, um it depends upon what side you are, you know, I I guess it can mirror an investigation in that there are moments where yes, we're making a breakthrough and everyone becomes engaged and then there's moments when you're just frustrated going, We're not getting anywhere with this. You know, that's that's the equivalent of the police going around and having to knock on doors, right? And just ask questions and try and, and root something out. you you I think it's such a good recreation that it doesn't Play to constantly, constantly being a ton of fun, but it is constantly interesting. It's a real clever way of bringing this whole sort of story to life again without being too gratuitous. I think if you can get people who are all interested in playing to sit down, and give you three or four hours of their attention, and and really dive into it, there's really a fantastic game to to find here. <laughs> The last game we're going to talk about for this episode is one that we came across at the UK Games Expo in May. I got a playtest there with the designer's son and it was so much fun I picked it up and we've played it a few times since. And it's called Cube Quest, Clash for the Crown. It's from GameRight, who have had lots, they kind of specialise in these family kind of games. They made Forbidden Island, Turn the Tide, Loot, Quicks, which is again up for Spiel des Jahres, Rory Story Cubes, lots of kind of family, children face games. Um, and the designer is Oliver Sibthorpe. And this is, I mean, he's had another variant of this out called uh, Kingbrick, but this is pretty much his first game. Now, Cube Quest takes about, well, one game really takes five to ten minutes, although it's recommended once you get quite good at it, you play a best of five. So I'm, I'm guessing they give yourself 30, 40 minutes for a full five round game if it goes that long. It's for two players, suggested ages eight and up, although I think you can play it with kids who've got some kind of manual dexterity. Because the, what the game is based on flicking cubes. Each player starts with a set of cubes on their side of a playing mat. One of which must be the king. And the king is the key to this game. And then you have 40 points on which to spend on other types of cubes. Now, different cubes have got different powers. We'll go over them in a second. The idea of the game is that you're going to attempt to flick your cubes into the other person's cubes on the other side of the, uh, of the playing mat. And you're attempting to knock their king off the board. And the player who first knocks the other player's king off the board, or I should say, sorry, the player whose king first goes off that playmat, loses the game. Whether it be from being knocked off from the other player's flick, knocked off by your own flick, or you try and flick your king and miss and goes off. However it happens, you lose if your king goes off. Now, like I said, you have 40 points to spend, and there are seven different types of cubes in the game so there's a little bit of building your own little army up to start with and and how you're going to set up the board um you have strikers who are good at attacking but cost more you have something called a helm which you can flick twice because your turn is just one flick of a cube that's it um you've got skulks which you can put if you flick it into other person's territory and it survives you're going to be able to take it off and replace it later grunts are the cheap ones that only cost two points and they're just standard but they've got When you flick a cube and it goes into the other person's half of the playmat, if it turns over onto a captured side, you lose that cube. Now, grunts have got, for example, four captured sides, so if you attack with them, it's likely to be a one-shot thing. However, strikers have only got one captured side, so that's one of the ways in which the the different cubes differentiate from each other. And you have a couple which uh, you don't really use to flick so much. There's healers, which you can use to try and revive some of your defeated cubes. And there are freeze blocks which you can take from off the board instead of flicking a cube and place it on one of the opponent's cubes on your half of the board. So building up your little army is part of the game and then actually it's quite a lot of fun in the next bit which is you can set up your cubes on your half of the playmat as you wish so there's all kinds of weird and wonderful strategies people employ do you want to put um big columns in so that the first one gets hit it's not gonna it's not gonna get all the way through to your ones at the back for example the king or are you gonna actually build walls up so that if they get hit the other ones fall down and try and take the momentum out of the other person's cubes there's all kinds of different ways of going about it and everyone will start getting creative. I think it's part of that Lego play thing. As soon as you get hold of those cubes, you realise you can do any pattern you like, your brain starts working into overdrive. That is the whole of CubeQuest. Get some cubes, flick them, try and knock the other person's king off the board. Sean, what do you think of Cube Quest?
0: Well, first off, I'm surprised you mentioned the playtest with the designer's son after the butt whooping that you and a nameless friend of ours, Lloyd... <coughs> Uh, Took from that six-year-old, seven-year-old.
1: Ah, uh, he was—he was at least eight and three quarters, I reckon.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was, that was uh, a lesson, and it was quite a pleasure to watch.
1: Yeah, but one of those players had been playing it for four years. One of them had been playing it for four minutes, and it wasn't very difficult to tell which. He was eight. And no, mind
0: was... <laughs> Yeah, well, the first time we we set eyes on this game, it was in the playtest there in the UK Games Exhibition, and it was the one game where people were actually watching, laughing, smiling. Everything else around it was really serious, and people were really concentrating on the designers' description of rules, as you should do. But this one was kind of stood out from the crowd because just everybody was having fun, and I think that's where the essence of this comes from. It's just a good fun game as you said it taps into your childhood with the building of your defenses and on top of that you've got a few little rules that are that make it stand it out from i suppose just to being a child's game there are things as you said with the strikers and the grunts and the people that can freeze your your troops and stuff so yeah it's it's a good fun game uh, bordering on the child's game but i think that elevates it just above what do you think
1: i think that while mechanically it's very simple it could be a child's game what makes it a bit more is that immediately when you start playing it it taps into the competitive spirit there has not been a single game of this i've either played or i've seen played where people didn't start shouting and moaning and groaning or we've been playing it quite a lot in pairs so you know, two people on either side rather than just as a two-player game. And it works perfectly well. In fact, it probably works better because if you do a bad flick, you can only blame yourself. But if your partner does a bad flick, well, obviously, you can castigate them royally and, and call them all sorts of rude names. <laughs> and it adds to the laugh, you know. When when the other team do something funny, then the two of you are laughing together. I actually think it works quite well as in pairs. And it's so quick. A turn is three seconds or if it's getting a bit competitive, maybe thirty seconds as it gets a bit like the crucible there, people trying to line up their angles and moving around the table and trying to work out the best move. It's quite funny for what is a flicking cube games. Definitely taps into the competitive spirit.
0: Yeah, and I'd also think this game is probably ripe for some expansions. There's just so much scope just to bring in new troops, different things. I'm sure all sorts are gonna be coming at us in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest so the, the powers it's it they do add a little bit to the game but they certainly don't become the focus of the game the focus is still is how well do you flick these cubes and actually quite an interesting thing about the production of them when i first played and when i first had the game i was like they, they feel a bit light they're hollow plastics they're not actually like dice uh, so when you're flicking them it kind of when i first started off, i was like oh it'd be better if these were heavier you know to have more of an impact but actually by having them that kind of lightweight sort of a thing it it makes it more skillful you can't just hosh your cubes into the other person's cubes and they'll all go flying all over the place if you flick it too hard it just goes straight up in the air doesn't it which i think is something you want to talk about perhaps a safety aspect sean
0: yeah i think you probably need at least safety goggles playing this game the amount of times that you'd be standing behind your defenses watching the person flick and get one right in the movie
1: (laughs) <laughs> it's always the flick that's like, you know, you've got a free flick against the king, or it's, it's the crucial ones. Oh so often you see it, people get overexcited and flick, and Few! it's four foot up in the air. <laughs> Which again, it creates a lot of funny moments. You're playing because it's the simplest thing, just to flick a cube and hit another cube. But the pressure and the competition kind of makes people crack.
0: Just a question for you: Do you still own all of your cubes? And would you agree that it's probably quite easy to lose your cubes, especially in, uh, if you go down to a gaming group or something like that?
1: Uh, surprisingly enough, and I have had this down at uh, London abroad a few times, and people have been playing it, and the cubes have flown everywhere. I have got them all. It's <laughs> um, I'm quite surprised, but to be honest if i lost one or two it wouldn't be the end of the world you're still gonna be able to play it it's not um not that it's a good thing that you could lose your cubes but i certainly wouldn't be you know i'd hate to bring it down there and sort of be like oh be careful be careful don't flick it too hard or whatever you're kind of ruining the game at that point just let people flick them around it's it's not the priceless game in the world i've played it i'm in double figures with plays of it other people I know have played my copy double figures numbers of times, played it with my kids already. I've only had it a short while, and already I've got lots and lots of play out of it. I think it's £25 at the Expo, so it's already made its money's worth for me. If I lose the odd cube, who cares? Oh,
0: definitely, but I just have the memories of you scrambling around in that tournament that was going on at the Expo. <laughs> yeah,
1: there's a few X-Wing fans got, got uprooted from their chairs as I was trying to get cubes from under their feet. Uh, not like it was important or anything, the UK Championships. I'm playing nah. cube Quest here, people. Cube quest. <laughs> one of my
0: grunts is under your feet.
1: Yeah. No, we've been playing for two hours. Why would you do that? Get out of the way, cube quest.
0: It's when you flip the table to get at them. That's a bit harsh.
1: I did say at least a second beforehand, get out of the way. Okay, anyway, <laughs> i tell you one of the issues I have got with it, though. Um, it comes with a play mat, and it's kind of like mouse mat material, and it comes in two halves and they fold up and go in the box but unfortunately my one, I know it sounds a bit ridiculous but it's got kind of lumps and bumps where it's folded and uh, it's frustrating when you flick that cube and it hits a bump in the join and it comes flying back at you or up in the air or uh, um, I actually think it's a good solution as to as to a playing surface it's just that it's getting a little bit lumpy I think I might need to bring an iron with me whenever I bring it out.
0: Yeah I- it, it, it does sound a bit pathetic talking about, but I can see absolutely what you mean. Because this game is so dependent on flicking that cube along the surface. As we've said, if you if you get too excited, you're just going to miss the whole contingent of your enemy, the enemy's cube. So, yeah, getting it smooth along that surface is absolutely fundamental to the game. And if you do have bits raising up here and there, then it is going to dramatically affected game.
1: Although it is a cube flicking game, so maybe I shouldn't take it too seriously.
0: <laughs> no. We, need, we, need, we literally need to iron out this problem. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, but um it really depends who I'm playing against, I think. I think I'm playing against my kids, I'm not that fast. Playing against certain other people, I'm taking it a bit more seriously. Um Sean, I don't think there's too much more to be said about it. It's a really good fun game it's just come out i would say keep an eye out for it uh, like i say from game right cube quest if you play with people who know how to find the fun in a game uh, not just worried about deep mechanics and, and you know uh, three hour long strategy games have got their place but 10 minute fun games have also got their place and this is a really good one
0: yeah i think this discussion just tells you all you need to know we've just taken it quite lightheartedly and yeah we've been doing a lot of laughing and joking and that's what this game's all about it stands out from the crowd in that people will come over to see why you're having so much fun and it might not last very long you might only want to play the game or two of it but for that game or two you're going to have a lot of fun
1: yeah completely agreed that's a that's cube quest from oliver sibthorpe and GameRight games
0: well thank you for listening to episode 10 of the game pit if you want to listen to more episodes, you can catch us on 2d6.org, along with a whole host of other gaming goodness. You can contact us at the thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at gamepitpodcast. We also have a guild on board Game Geek, so come along and have a chat with us there. Music by E. Aram.